Welcome to, this is not False Flight Weekly News, this is Truth Jihad Audio-Visual. I'm Kevin Barrett, talking with interesting folks from all over the world who have perspectives that you don't often encounter in the mainstream, but maybe you should encounter some of these perspectives. And my guest today, Jason Horsley, definitely has a very interesting perspective, and I don't think they're going to put him at the top uh, headlines of the mainstream media anytime soon. He's the author of a new book on Stanley Kubrick called The Kubrickon, The Technology of Evil. And it's probably the best book you'll ever read on Stanley Kubrick by somebody who hates Stanley Kubrick, because it's probably the only one, but it's actually pretty good. So, hey, uh, welcome, Jason. How are you doing? Thanks, Kevin. Uh, I just raised my finger there because um, the PDF I sent you has the wrong subtitle. So the actual subtitle, that's the subtitle for the follow-up, which is called Big Mother. This is coming out next year, too. But the correct subtitle uh, is something like The Cult of Kubrick, Attention Capture and the Inception of AI. Oh, OK. Well, yeah. let's just remember the Kubrickon. That's Kubrick, like his name, with a con at the end. Um, it's a very provocative, interesting book. Um, and I'll tell you right off the bat that I... I, I thought, you know, I'm going to have to maybe do a bit of a debate here, and I'm going to guarantee to lose this debate because uh, I'm not a fanatical Kubrick fan by any means, but I'm kind of an admirer who appreciates, uh, I don't know if joys would be the right word. In many cases, it certainly wouldn't be, but but I'm one of these people who's kind of a moderate pro-Kubrick type. Mm -hmm. And so your book didn't fully convince me not to be. So right. maybe we, you can lay out the argument, you know, against, you know, you and of course, I haven't seen most of these movies recently. In fact, so a couple of them I haven't ever seen. And yeah. so you're, you're at a great advantage and you should be able to totally mop the floor with me here. <laughs> well, first off, I mean, you're a moderate and that's I'm not really interested in trying to demolish the, the, the worship or the opinion of moderates because moderates aren't in the case of Kubrick or any other case. They're not enslaved by some ideology. Um, so my my truck with Kubrick, uh, or at least how it began, was with the extremists. There's such an extreme uh, consensus around Kubrick, even though it's maintained like perhaps many, if not most, consensuses or consensi by a minority, uh, like academia and intelligentsia and film people, film community. There's been, anyway, a concerted effort starting with Kubrick himself um, to reify both the man and the movies, and I'd say it's been extremely successful, um, so much so that you don't find many moderates. You find people who are maybe not interested in Kubrick uh, or very occasionally maybe, I don't know how rare it is actually, because I know quite a few who just don't really like his movies. And then then you have the those who swear that he is the greatest thing that ever came along in the world of cinema. So... Um, that's that's where I begin my interrogation, if you will. Is you know, is is Kubrick really such a unparalleled filmmaker, or is something else going on? And what I I won't say conclude because I think this is more like halfway through the thesis. But what I what I have to acknowledge, even very early on, really, is is that Kubrick is an exceptional filmmaker. That he's not. He's not like other filmmakers. I, I think I might have always acknowledged that. It's just in in the, my initial period as a film critic and, and just as a, a film viewer, um, I just felt he was 
the most overrated and that his films were unusually cold and they didn't really have much of a human dimension talking post from Dr. Strangelove on more or less. Um, and that, I mean, that's unusual, but that's not what I'm talking about here. What, what I explore in the book is, is that his films from uh, Dr. Strangelove, or at least from 2001, were something other than ordinary movies, which of course is what his, uh, you know, advocates and even his worshippers will will try to convince us. But they take a position that they're somehow superior as movies, and I, I just simply cannot see that. And because I haven't been able to see it, I've been looking for to try and understand what it is that has captured people. And what I came upon over time was that. Um, I'll, I'll just give the very condensed, simple version because it is a complicated thesis, I think. Uh, and it, to, with the proviso that I've had to, whenever one creates a counter narrative, Oliver Stone said this about JFK, one has to sympathize just to make sense of it in order to have enough kind of leverage or enough traction to, to uh, up, upturn the existing consensus. So I'm keeping it very simple, but my thesis is the, uh, or it includes the idea that Kubrick, while he was working on uh, 2001, which itself, as I explore in the book, there's, there's, there's some unusual things about that film in terms of why it was made and how it was made. And of course, there's the theories about Kubrick faking the moon landing and which I don't get into very much, but certainly he was he was deeply ensconced in NASA and the whole development of space technology that did lead to moon landing, real or not. Um, so so Kubrick was already deeply embedded in in some kind of, I would say, scientific research at that time. It was the beginning of DARPA, and he was very interested in computers. But what I posit is the possibility that because he was making a movie about artificial intelligence, how he became fascinated by this challenge and he began this parallel project which was how to create artificial intelligence specifically in order to avoid the house scenario which is, is the, a computer that uh, understands the mechanics of of existence and human beings in society but doesn't actually understand what it is to be human would eventually perceive humans as a problem <laughs> you know a span in the works that was better off just removing it entirely i think that there's a pretty robust logic to that yes and i uh, agree completely yeah yeah like ray kurtz was the, the the future doesn't need us is the classic essay about how if we're lucky they'll keep us as pets yeah, well, there's even uh, talk about that currently with the World Economic Forum, and I forget this guy, um, but uh, Yuri something, I don't know, he's very well known. Yuri Spokes Harari, person. yeah. That's the one, thank you, um, who, who's saying similar things now. Um, so, yeah, I think that Kubrick uh, was aware of this and that he did set his sights on something besides just making movies, and that his movies thereafter became were, were part of a a hidden project that he was involved with, which was the development of artificial intelligence. And so that he designed movies as a form form of um, attention capture devices as a means to try and capture the attention of audiences and uh, siphon off that attention and uh, feed it into a database. As I say, I'm very, I'm very much simplifying because I'm, I don't necessarily mean this quite as literally as it sounds, but let's say as a kind of fable. And so uh, 
his movies were designed uh, with the specific end and therefore in the specific way, more scientifically than artistically. And there were various principles that he adhered to, such as placing anomalies in the films, such as making them somewhat devoid of ordinary human behaviors and expressions and things. Uh, various other things that I uh, explore in the book, but generally or entirely geared towards creating artifacts that would generate fascination uh, and, and even obsession, obsession, right? But fascination would be the first level of obsession, which I'd say is fairly benign. We go to the movies, we want to be fascinated. Obsession is when it becomes something else. And as some of your listeners would know, I don't know if you know, knew before the book, there is a whole subculture, uh, you know, post the intelligentsia in the critical community, which I would say obsessed over Kubrick in a, a more conventional way of like worshipping him, trying to raise him up to this, you know, lofty throne of artistic cinematic genius. There is a subsequent... Uh, audience cult of Kubrafars who who uh, sift through his movies frame by frame and line by line and try to find all of these clues that they believe are in there even to the point of counting the number of days between his birthday and this event or his death day and that event anything you can possibly imagine in terms of amassing and organizing data around his film over and so my point in the book is is that that to get human beings to work uh, putting information into the com into the computer superstructure, which is the internet, which he anticipated, I mean, it was coming up during this time with DARPA, uh, is a way not just to feed massive amounts of information about human beings and culture, which, of course, we have through all the social media forms now, but a particular kind of, kind of hyper-subjective uh, interpretation. Some would say kooky, but it, it's just very very subjective people read all kinds of things into kubrick movies that was explored in the room uh, in the Rob rodney asher film room 237 five different perspectives on the shining all totally different kind of incompatible essentially incompatible and yet all quite persuasive it was a very good film documentary um and but totally subjective so it's this, this weird and yet to them it isn't of course they believe they found all the clues that proves the shines about the holocaust or the fake moon landing or the uh, destruction of native americans or uh the lab the minotaur in the labyrinth or you know whatever else they come up with um i mean this is just kind of the critical interpretive game that happens with high literature in general james joyce and particularly uh ulysses and especially finnegan's wake uh, uh is said to be designed you know he, he sat down and said i'm going to surpass shakespeare i'm going to write something that's going to keep the critics busy for centuries and so that's and it's kind of taken for granted in the post-religious age that hermeneutics which used to be devoted to scripture and finding you know the ultimate reality religiously through interpretation of scripture now it's mm -hmm. it's devoted to interpreting works of art and literature and so there's a kind of a new church of, of art and literature out there in which the critics uh, essentially rate works of art and literature in terms of how deep they are uh, how how uh, how much they lend themselves to these kinds of endless interpretations and a really great work of art would be one that you could have a lot of 
critics spend a lot of time with and keep finding new things and new interpretations. And so we have a reason to keep talking about it. It's got more meaning than a more simple, simplified work of art. So that work would then become part of the canon. And as Joyce said, it would keep people busy for centuries or keep the critics busy for centuries. So right. why, why isn't, why wouldn't you just, I mean, it looks to me like that's kind of part of what Kubrick was doing that led to your thesis. Yeah. Right. So there's a, you could say it's a tradition, although I think it's relatively new. I mean, I don't think the people who wrote the Bible wanted to keep critics busy for centuries. They wanted to transmit a divine revelation in such a way that other people would experience it. Of course, there are people who rejoice who say that that happens. There are people who love Kubrick who say that they've had these profound insights. Uh, I I don't believe it personally. Uh, speaking as somebody who who grew up ensconced in popular culture, for me it was Marvel Comics, and then it was Clint Eastwood and Elvis and David Bowie, and all of that led to, uh, let's say, unwholesome, even self-destructive practices. You know, even though there was a kernel of something really profound, because otherwise it wouldn't have captured my attention. Um, something that corresponded with divine revelation, a sense truly of the numinosity of, of, of existence of God uh, imminent. Uh, it, it, they were, they're, they're culturally, you know, uh, they're corporate cultural products that, that they have intelligences, human intelligence behind them that aren't, they're not recipients of divine revelation. Now, right. obviously that is a spectrum and, 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 you know, a true artist is, if they are true, is attempting to, be a a vessel to transmit the divine. I, I'm not saying that somebody who is artistically oriented isn't isn't uh, potentially in service of truth and reality. But I'd say we've we've come quite a long way from uh, you know the purity of a single being, a single human being, just receiving something, some insight, and then communicating in a way that is beautiful and that will touch others. Uh, we've come a long way from that. Yeah. Uh, and we're ensconced in this culture uh, that is inherently uh, malevolent, I would say. I mean, that, this is my yeah, I agree. It's, I think it's decadent. decadent. Yeah. Mo yeah. Moving from, from scriptural hermeneutics to literary greatness as your 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 God is is very decadent. Well, right. So exactly. And and if we look at Kubrick as an as an example, he was he was an atheist. Uh he was very obsessed with technology, with science, with computers, and so on. So he had a certain, uh, not just an aesthetic, but a a, uh, a kind uh, an ideology. But a, um, I mean, his relationship to existence and his perspective uh, was such that I would say that it's inherently quite cynical and quite nihilistic, and when nature abhors a vacuum and the human psyche abhors a vacuum, I mean, it's a chicken or an egg thing, but when when there is a lack of a sense of the divine uh, dimension of existence and reality, then uh, there's a, a natural, even inevitable tendency to try and find something to replace that. As I said, it's a bit chicken or an egg, mm -hmm. but it could be science, it could be art, it could be occultism, and it could be bogus religion even. Mm -hmm. uh, but something is going to replace it. Anyway, for Kubrick, yes. it was uh, it was a mix of science and art. And, and I think there is something inherently deceptive in that. Um, 
And I think we can see it in the way that, I mean, in our culture in general, as I say, I wasn't immune to it, that uh, art, the arts and specifically movies, they have a tendency to invoke in us a kind of worshipful attitude, whether it's for the directors or the movie stars or the movies themselves. We feel as though they make our life meaningful, they give real meaning to our lives. And um, I think that that's very, it's more than a double-edged sword. I think mm-hmm. it's a trap, really. Yes. I think once we start to attribute meaning to to the creations of other human minds uh, that that don't lead to a an interior sense of the divine, at which point we no longer need that reference point, but rather lead to more and more consumption of these artifacts and the worship of the people that make them. That's when we have a satanic or an inverted culture. Mm-hmm. So I mean, this is the larger context that I'm exploring Kubrick, because uh, mm-hmm. I've yeah. argued this in my previous books. Um, and so yeah, Kubrick, you know, even even if I was writing about my favorite filmmaker, I would still be looking for ways to undermine and invalidate his work. Right? Mm-hmm. No, nobody gets off in terms of, from, from right. my critical well, eye. Let, 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 let me th- throw a counter interpretation at you here, not fully, because I actually basically agree with what you're saying for the most part. But in terms of Kubrick's work, it occurs to me that the way I read them, uh, it's I, I see the the same stuff that you're seeing as just cold and mechanical i'm seeing as comedy as as dark comedy there's a uh there was an analogy i'm trying to remember the name of the french philosopher i don't think it was bergson although he he may have picked up on it but there was another french philosopher i think before bergson who uh said that comedy is essentially when the living uh aware sort of divine spark imbued human being sees uh, uh, himself or another human being acting mechanically, like mm-hmm. slipping on a banana peel. If somebody slips on a banana peel, why is that funny? Well, it, it's funny because they were sort of robotic in their walking without awareness. Uh, and they just put, you know, uh, lack the awareness to miss the banana peel. And so we laugh because they become sort of an object. So uh, I think black comedy in a way uh the humor noir uh and absurdism all of this does emerge from an atheistic culture increasingly atheistic increasingly self-aware in its atheism that sees no meaning in existence and then finds it's you know that's either awful or it, it finds something kind of almost humorous in the horror of it right and so i think that these two kinds of comedy what you know the 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 kind of the humor of the human being merely mechanical that humor doesn't depend on atheism and and uh, that whole uh, absurdist kind of framework but i think what kubrick was doing was operating within that dark comedy absurdist kind of tradition that emerged after world war ii and uh putting out a, a very very subtle and dark form of comedy and we and again you you mentioned that this new type of film that he did started with dr strangelove the ones before yeah. that are a little more conventional the dr strangelove was obviously an all-out black comedy in which yeah. the uh non-human non-aware non-divine uh robotic element mechanical element of the human beings involved as they mindlessly march towards total destruction is hilarious and terrifying at the same time and everything he did after that 
a lot of what he did after that has some of that, I think. Uh, and you know, whether it's Clockwork Orange, which is a black comedy about the mechanical nature of people being driven by these kinds of desires, including sadistic and sexual desires. And uh, then on through Barry Lyndon, a who's a kind of a clockwork orange himself in an from an earlier period, on through these the other films that you discussed to some extent in many of them, uh, very obviously in uh, the, uh, what's it called? The, the Marine Corps one. What was that one? Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, Full Metal Jacket, right. Very, very they're obviously clockwork oranges in that film too to me all of these films are comedies they're uh and i remember just uh, once laughing literally laughing like crazy all the way through barry linden like <laughs> this vision of humanity as being so mindless so robotic so clockwork is uh it's liberating to because it makes us aware of that aspect of ourselves and others around us and reminds us that there's something else a spark of divine consciousness in us that shouldn't be <laughs> going disappearing and letting us be these these hilariously stupid mindless mechanical clockwork orange robots right so that's that's the way i read his work and i read it as actually a desperate attempt to provoke the awareness right that non-attachment like what's alex's problem in clockwork orange he's he's attached to his violent sadistic you know erotic impulses uh you know and what's what's the problem of the characters in dr strangelove same thing basically uh what's the problem with barry linden same thing basically they're all prisoners of their mechanical nature and to me uh kubrick is revealing this and that revelation is challenging us and sort of forcing us to be more than that and we laugh at, at we laugh at all the horror of it and are liberated to know that we are supposed to be something more than that so he's a satirist who's pointing at stuff where you know he's not championing lifeless clockwork orange mechanistic life he is satirizing it and making us laugh at it and be aware of it and not participate in it well, I, th I think uh, you brought up a lot of points in a way, maybe just one main one, but I think, I mean, the last thought I had that is the easiest to retrieve is is uh, the counter-argument to that would be 2001, A Space Odyssey, because... Which I don't, I don't like anything... very much. <laughs> oh, right. Well, that's that's the head cornerstone of his work, so uh, really, I mean, it, it... well, anyway, uh, I brought it up because I don't think anyone could I think it's a stretch to say that something like a clock orange is a comedy. I mean, I think it could be, it could have been done that way, but I don't, I don't think he did it. Uh, I know what you're saying. I think Kubrick did have a satirical view of hum, human beings, but I think that that's inseparable from his nihilistic attitude. Uh, and I think there probably was a turning point around Dr. Strangelove actually, because they started that as, as, as straight. And, and then they decided to turn it into comedy because it was too absurd and, and and so maybe there was a kind of giving up that happened in Kubrick at that point. 
Um, I mean, that, that would be an interesting thing to explore. Giving up on the human race, which I can see. Yeah, like, essentially. You know, like, let's, just turn it into a joke. let's just turn right. it into a joke, right? And right. I think that that's dangerous, for lack of a better word. I think that's irresponsible, too. To I mean, I'm not against black comedies by any means, but I think they should be funny, for one thing. I mean, Doctor Strange was quite funny. but Well, but not, nobody else seemed to think Barry Lyndon uh, was funny. Like, I was the, I'm the no. only person I've well, ever heard of. Well, there you go. I mean, yeah. That's an example of the subjective Kubrick experience. And I'm not going to try and take that away from anyone because that's part of my thesis. But I'll just finish the point about 2001, which is that, hey, it's, there's nothing comic about it. It's a very serious work, or whatever you think of it. And uh, B, that that film is probably the only one he's made that, uh, well, one would have to argue more in a more uh, nuanced way that it was nihilistic because it's a film that offers hope. I, I consider it a deeply bogus transhumanist kind of hope, but nonetheless, it's offering the star child, which is the, the Superman, through evolution, through violence, evolutionary violence, uh, that we will reach this end point through the stargate, where, where we'll be reborn as this cosmic being. Um, did Kubrick believe that? I, I think we have to leave that open, but certainly that was the closest that he came to some kind of answer to the, the problem of humanity. The rest of the time, as you say, he just made fun of it, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, but I but I, I think rather than continue on, on this particular track, because it's very interesting, I could go on for hours, but um, uh I just underscore the aesthetic qualities of Kubrick's films, which is inseparable from whether you like them or not. And even to some extent, the effects, although not so much the effects, but I'd say there's going to be a spectrum of effects there, but they're, they're secondary to, to what I'm writing about in the Kubrick on. Of course I am using the films as examples, but, but only, and, and as far as their aesthetic qualities, and even as I say, their effects only insofar as, it supports or doesn't support, you know, in reference to my thesis, which was that he he wasn't making ordinary movies, that he was involved in something very different. And so all of the qualities of his films, whether you like them or you don't, um, need to be, for me, you know, with my thesis, they need to be uh, looked at within, through that lens, like, rather than saying, well, he was a terrorist or he was trying to, you know, because... I could say I just don't believe that, but that's just very subjective. But they're not, uh, they're separate from my thesis. Right? My thesis is simply... Yeah, yeah, let's, let's get into your thesis a little bit. So, uh, you know, I, I, don't, I don't fully understand the thesis because um, it seems that if you were going to create AI and you wanted to have it kind of understand human subjectivity, I'm not clear about why having a cult of Kubrick with all of these people sort of projecting subjective interpretations on Kubrick films would help you that much. Like there's already a cult of Joyce with people doing exactly the same thing with Joyce and and a lot of other people. They're not doing it on the internet, number one. They're not doing it with imagery, number two, although that's perhaps secondary, except so far as the internet, which is to say Kubrick and was aware that it was being developed during that time in the mid sixties with DARPA. Um, it's it, it's a very different environment, uh, if you will, uh, for, I mean, the internet itself, as we've seen in the last 10 years with Cambridge Analytica, Brexit, uh, you know, Trump selection, et cetera, et cetera, these, and Twitter currently, what's being revealed about Twitter, what we already knew about Facebook, the internet 
and I would say it was designed by this as a military weapon um, from the start, but it's become more and more demonstrably a form of, of capturing attention, of gathering data on individuals and then if using that data for various different ends you know the most simple and basic in terms of mark you know selling stuff and then the more sophisticated in terms of determining the outcomes of elections and even uh well determining them in both sense of the words actually and, and, and feeding big data to ai and creating ai, AI. well yeah. right so that's to me that's the you know the overarching thesis is, is that we're moving towards as a society uh a, a technocratic um, cybernetic uh, society where everything is um, regulated by some sort of presiding intelligence, uh, which which can function independently of human choices and human actions, and that is essentially artificial intelligence. I agree with uh, that, but where does Kubrick come in? Right. So where Kubrick comes in is is that he, in my thesis, he was one of the pioneers who understood that in order to have a algorithm-based artificial intelligence uh, structure or edifice uh, regulating society, you need human input. It's not just enough for the big brain scientists to create it and then just start beaming the audience. The audience has to actually become participatory in it because where's the data going to come from? I mean, mass observation was like this in the 30s, which I wrote about in Vice the Kings, before computers or anything. They were just going around bars and talking to people in Britain, uh, you know, spies essentially, but pretending to be ordinary people, just talking to as many people as they could. Like and focus groups. Yeah, writing yeah. it all down and amassing it in order to mm-hmm. understand how best to influence people and anticipate what they would do. So it's it goes back a long time pre-computers, but certainly obviously the game got upped very rapidly with cybernetics. And and so um yes, yeah, so so Kubrick anticipated this that with the internet there would and video games, of course, were happening. Um there would be a more and more opportunity for participatory, like a two-way flow between Big Brother and you know, the, the masses that Big Brother is is controlling, and that people's own attention could be used uh, not just to fuel and inform the machinery, but se- inseparable from that to to control them. Like the more you capture people's attention, of course, the more you can um, influence their decisions. That's that's tautological, really. Um, and at the same time, as I say, you're capturing their attention in a way that's participatory. They're not just watching, they're interacting, they're putting in data. And so on the one hand, they're putting more and more of their energy and attention into the machine, the cybernetic infrastructure. But on the other hand, they're also um, becoming more and more engaged with it and therefore more and more you know their their choices are going to be more and more dictated by the sea of data that they're helping to to you know, replenish. Yeah, and this is so, all the internet's doing all this, but but how, what's the special element that Kubrick's gives? So, so then, uh, Kubrick, uh, the example of Kubrick is is that well, I mean, leaving this, the films aside just momentarily, we we'll get to them afterwards. But the 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 Kubrick audience call. This the particular kind. I mean, it, it began with the critics and the intelligence. I say writing lots of articles and books and all this. Kubrick is great. Kubrick is great. Just this mantra that that was 
um, more like laying the groundwork, that kind of obsessive attention to Kubrick. And what it laid the groundwork for is this, as I said, it depends how aware your listeners are of this, but there's a there's a very active, very engaged cult of Kubrick out there, and their their medium is the internet. They, they refer to the movies, but then they and they you know they take the images, they reproduce them, they reproduce them, they uh, create videos, and they create these commentaries. There are sites that pages and pages long that that analyze every single frame of the shining, the different angles of the camera. It's it's quite surreal to me. That yeah, I loved a little bit of this after your book alerted me to it. I really didn't know it had reached that point. Yeah. yeah they make so, the Finnegan's Wake fanatics look pretty tame. Right. So so my so my I mean there's a number of different points about this, but to, and it is complicated or at least it's it's sort of strange and unfamiliar. But Kubrick himself he kept files on his audience in terms of anyone who wrote to him. He always kept the letters and he kept them in a filing system and they were organized according to different qualities and also location. And uh, his assistant, I think it was Anthony Fruin, referred to these as Kubrick's irregulars because sometimes after the Sherlock Holmes thing, Sherlock Holmes had this band of urchins and whatnot who he could deploy when he needed to perform a psychological operation or whatever it was and um so kubrick would sometimes actually contact these fans if they lived in a town where he wanted to check on something etc etc um so if you think of that extending to these thousands perhaps maybe not hundreds of thousands but tens of thousands of kubrick fanatics who are working away on the internet they're creating websites they're generating more and more interest and obsession around this idea that kubrick wasn't just the greatest filmmaker ever but he was some kind of mastermind who was communicating the secrets of the universe um all of that creates a kind of fevered uh intensity of consciousness that is uh both dependent on the machinery of the internet but at the same time animating it so it's like the um the pod people in the matrix the pod mm. people is amazing the body snatches but the people in the pods in the matrix they're batteries mm -hmm. and they're not just it's not just the human energy uh that powers the matrix it's the consciousness because the mm -hmm. matrix couldn't create a dream world if it didn't have the sleeping people to generate mm -hmm. the images well, so well the matrix the matrix is a good metaphor for what's really going on with the internet and the possible development of ai based on the big data that's so available from the internet because we're all feeding our obsessions into the internet whatever whatever our obsessions are kubrick or, or what have you um and and likewise i think what i what i'm getting out of your argument is that it's not a literal claim that this is really going to advance an actual, you know, AI breakthrough thanks to Kubrick, but rather it looks to me like what you're presenting is another metaphor, a metaphor for the kind of obsession, uh, an extreme, you know, it's a, it's a metaphor by way of the extremism of the mm -hmm. Kubrick cult, that that extremism of that Kubrick cult with their ex attention to detail and so on, all of that and and their you know their extreme fanaticism into what they're interested in well like everybody else on the internet everybody's you know some people watch cat videos right some people yeah. but people's particular obsessions and interests are being probably cataloged by the big data miners who are creating ai based on it so it's essentially it seems to me you're, you're giving us a metaphor for that rather than a literal argument that there's going to be a you know the first ai is going to be named 
the Stanley Kubrick fan club. Right. Well, uh, it's partly a metaphor, but and then it's partly just an example, essentially, because you're right, mm-hmm. it's happening yeah. everywhere and with everyone. Uh, but also there's the, the factor of an in- intentionality and uh, of an early adopter, if you like, that, that Kubrick may have been, you know, I keep my thesis loose in terms of the facts. I've got no smoking gun that he was actually involved in some plan to create artificial intelligence it's all deductive you know you're uh, you're, you're actually you're actually kind of going down the same path that you're criticizing here you know in a way like the, the people who were so obsessed with Absolutely. Kubrick you know staging the moon landings and stuff well you're Absolutely. going one better yeah, yeah well that's right I, I'm aware of the irony of that and 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 that you know he kind of captured me even though I was you know, doing everything I could to resist and show other people that they'd been captured, uh, but he'd already captured me in a certain. <laughs> You're sense. a character in the Kubrick Matrix. You need to <laughs> well, try yeah, to get I out. Think, I think that unplug. line is that line is in the move, in the book, isn't yes, it? You've yes. been the caretaker, Jake. Uh, oh, yeah, but we all are, aren't we? I mean, whether it's Kubrick or, as I say, for me, it was Clint Eastwood or David Bowie. You know, Kubrick is just well, he's just the latest case study, but. He is. It's there's closer to smoking guns with Kubrick, and it, so it's less of a metaphor. I would say he was demonstrably interested in artificial intelligence and computers. Uh, he was the various things I uh, lay out in the book. And in terms of um, artificial intelligence or it being a metaphor, I mean, I think we are we are seeing the immersion the emergence of artificial intelligence now. I mean, that is my point of view. Uh, in Big Mother, I get into what that really means, and the short version is is that I feel that artificial intelligence uh, is is an oxymoron. There's no such thing, and there never will be. But there are discarnate entities who know how to inform and influence and and incarnate through technology. That's mm-hmm. my basic thesis. The, the jinn. The jinn. Yes. Thank you. Exactly. So you're familiar with that, of course, because of your own interest. Um, I, I I feel we are seeing that. And so uh, the technology is becoming more and more sentient, more and more anima, and, and, and more and more involved algorithmically and, and otherwise in our decisions and in our actions. And, and that seems to me well worth developing a deeper awareness of. And so I was willing to, to go back into the overlook, you know, and look at this Kubrick and just try and lay it out in this book, knowing that it's risky. As you said, I end up getting pulled into the same trap I'm trying to free others from because not because Kubrick's so important uh, or his movies matter to me so much, but because what can be demonstrated, I believe, through through his intentions and his uh, methodologies uh, is something that is absolutely urgently present in our lives now in the form of this technological incursion into, into human consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think this is why you've managed to write a rather brilliantly insightful book about somebody you hate, which is like it's rare that people could ever pull that off. Uh, well, you, you know, the book opens with considering eyes wide shut, which you particularly hate. Uh, yeah, particularly yeah, hate. yeah, I, I can't really blame you for that. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, my I guess I was one of the majority of people who, on first viewing, felt somewhere between sort of mystified and you know and and stimulated to try to figure out what was it that was so 
stra interestingly strange about this film. Like I wasn't bored. I wasn't like yawning and oh, this is stupid or anything like that. I was watching it. I was, it, it was in interestingly strange, but off in a, in a kind of uh, almost borderline repulsive way. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and of course, in the context, uh, those of us, you know, professional conspiracy theorists like me uh, are obliged, of course, to posit the possibility that a cult, not entirely unlike the one depicted in the film, may have knocked off Kubrick shortly after he finished the film. I had I did interview Jay Widener about this uh, 10 years ago or so, and maybe more, actually. And, and Jay, of course, uh, believe that he said he said that Kubrick sat down with the producers showed them his cut and the producers uh basically said you know uh got very very angry and then you know what it was a few weeks later whatever Kubrick was dead um so there's that conspiracy theory quote unquote that he was revealing something that he shouldn't have revealed it's rather parallel to the conspiracy theories about Mozart that Mozart was killed for revealing the freemasonic knocks in the magic flute and so in any case you know i emerged from that film you know with those kinds of reactions um and thinking that probably what we saw was not the director's cut and i guess that's been confirmed it was rather what the studio bosses were willing to put out after kubrick was dead and maybe after they had killed him or their friends and their cult had killed him so that was kind of my take on it but after reading your chapter I, uh, I then saw the references to that French uh, film critic who pointed out that it is exposing Operation Monarch and that uh, the, um, for the names of the, the, uh, the actress in the film, the wife, uh, is uh, apparently, um, you know, the, the subtext of the film is that she's uh, in a sex cult, you know, Operation Monarch style sex cult. And that the daughter uh, of the couple is kidnapped by members of the cult who had been there at, at the uh, the the orgy, the, the cult's orgy. So anyway, that reading strikes me as very, very persuasive. And it seems to me that that's precisely what Kubrick wanted us to get out of it. And who knows what the original director's cut version would have been. Uh, but again, that would support my thesis that mm -hmm. from Dr. Strangelove on, Kubrick is exposing the uh, horror of the the way where we human species is allowing itself to be ruled. Um, and and that the purpose is not so much to get everybody talking about these horrific you know, monarch cults that run sex slavery rings with brainwashed, traumatized, children who are brought up throughout life to be sex slaves and drug couriers and assassins and things like that uh he's he's ex provoking us to think of, uh, to think about this and talk about it and exchange ideas obsessively on the internet about it uh in order to wake us up so that we put an end to this in the same way that his making us laugh at the mechanical nature of humans <laughs> ourselves and people around us is designed to wake us up so that we stop being mechanical so that's my my positive evaluation of of the purpose of eyes wide shut and you're welcome to rebut it yeah uh well there's a number of different ways that i would rebut it uh first off being the film itself which is so far from an expose of anything depraved in my view that it's kind of ludicrous i mean because the actual orgy is just that it's an orgy and people in masks 
and okay there's the death of the woman but it's not really particularly sinister i don't think not 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 in the age post jimmy savile and post jeffrey epstein it's pretty pretty white bread uh so that's number one now right, we'll because we're supposed to we're supposed to slowly discover the monarch angle and then talk about it well right but the monarch thing is no big deal either i mean that stuff's been on the internet since the 70s right about monarchs so um I mean, there's a larger point here, which I've made at various different times, which is, uh, and it doesn't necessarily have to refer to this idea of revelation of the method, which you may have heard about, which is mm-hmm. that you know, the, 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 our secret, these secret societies actually want us to know what they're doing incrementally because it makes it easier for them to get away with it. And because by knowing and not resisting or objecting, we're consenting. I do think there's a measure of truth in this. Right. But- so, so we always have to say we object. And I, I want to put it on the record yeah. that I object to Operation Right. <laughs> right. Uh, well, I object to cruelty to children, certainly. I mean, that's, that's somewhere I'll definitely draw a very clear line, and I've explored that in many of my books. Uh, but there was none of that in Eyes Wide Shut. Uh, it, was, it was just consensual adults having sex or paid sex workers, basically completely harmless in, you know, in the post-woke age that we live in. I don't know what how anyone could argue that eyes wide shut. But, 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 but he did that on purpose. That, that that's the whole point. The whole point is is that you then have to you know there's something really creepy, but you can't put your finger on what it is. Yeah, but the problem is is that the creepiness is inseparable from bad acting, bad dialogue, <laughs> uh, really bad yeah. staging, uh-huh. uh, which I do argue might have been intentional. Yeah. But it doesn't seem consistent with the idea uh, that Kubrick was trying to expose you know, dark goings on by the elite. No, no. It's, it, um, he's exposing a society that is as insane in allowing this elite that's doing but, these. But MP- Kubrick himself was an insider. This is the thing that people forget. He was the most powerful film director in history. He could have made any film he wanted. I would never, I can't possibly buy the fact that you know, he, he would get stopped, much less murdered. This guy was an insider. If he was, uh, what people claim he was doing if he was actually trying to undermine the powers of you know, society corporate society governments he would not have continued making movies it's ridiculous it's the same argument. i mean like david ike would be a counterpoint in both senses or both both points i'd like to make one is does david ike really do any good to the human race by revealing all these things even if they're true i i honestly don't think he does i think there's probably a few people who go from david ike to a much deeper more considered exploration and maybe get through the david ike rabbit hole or the alex jones rabbit hole but the majority don't they just become more and more conspiratainmented out and titillated and excited and paranoid and weirded out by all this stuff but it doesn't make any profound changes at all mm-hmm. uh, and the second point about david that's a, that's a good or, point. or alex jones is well how come they're able to continue platforming to hundreds of thousands or millions of people if there are these subversive threats i mean we know that governments have been killing subversive pre- you know so people in society who really have some kind of influence which isn't part of the program they just they just take them out of course they do right mm-hmm. uh so, so well, that's if it's monolithic but i mean what, what if you have lots of powerful people and some of them are using monarch sex slaves and you know a few of them are actually producing those sex slaves and then a lot of them aren't and kubrick happens to be one who isn't and he's just told us about the ones who are and he's horrified by that in the same way he's horrified by the nuclear well, command structure in dr strangelove 
I mean, the first point, both points remain. One being, it doesn't make any difference if you make a movie about stuff if it doesn't lead to a really deep understanding of these problems. And Eyes Wide Shut is never going to do that. Uh, and number two, he, he was Kubrick to the end. Uh, I mean, look at Julian Assange if you want to see what happens to somebody who really does rock the boat. Right? Bad things happen. They don't just carry on getting multi-million dollar deals. I think it's absurd, essentially. So, so you think Widener's thesis that he was killed because of Eyes Wide Shut is absurd? It was a coincidence that he died shortly after the screening. Uh, well, did he die, number one? We have to ask <laughs> okay. that about Jeffrey Epstein as well. Funny enough, I, I lived in Hampstead in the early 2000, 2001, and uh, there was a a man that I would pass in a, in a window every day and he would sit at his desk and he had this beard and his glasses. And my friend and I, might, we used to joke that it was Kubrick because it looked so much like Kubrick. But mm -hmm. of course, we just thought it was a joke. But but now I, I wonder, so. <laughs> maybe it was him, right? Um, <laughs> oh, but anyway, uh, that was just a, a, a frivolous <laughs> aside, really. But um, what were we saying? Oh, that Jay Widener's thesis. Yeah, to me, that's that's part of the mystification of Kubrick, essentially. I, I, I really don't trust... And and it does. I mean, you can't verify it, uh, and it doesn't answer many questions about Eidwhite. You certainly the the cut that we got was certainly close to Kubrick's cut. Uh, just going by the basic, you know, the mainstream facts. I'm not saying you never really know what to believe, but 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 uh, you know, there doesn't seem to be much good solid evidence. But why would they withhold the director's cut? They could make a lot of money out of it. Uh, well, who says they have? Besides mm. Jay Widener, because I haven't heard about this really. I mean, as far as, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, yeah, I just don't know. I mean, is that true? I know. Well, that I, they, I, I thought they I thought that the it's less explicit, but I mean, right, so. yeah, I, I yeah, I thought the the mainstream narrative is that yes, this is not the director's cut, and the director's cut or whatever it's unavailable. There are scenes, there are a lot, you know, there are scenes that were taken out and they've never been made available. No, I don't say. I mean, that's just worth looking into for you if you're not sure. But I certainly didn't find anything like that suggesting that. I mean, I've got an academic book on eyes wide shut. Okay. Yeah, maybe I, maybe I was listening to Widener too much. I don't know. But yeah, I think I'll so. get back on and see what he has to say. I think <laughs> and, he's still around. I mean, it's hard to isn't it hard to imagine that eyes wide shut could ever really be uh, much good, no matter how much they restored missing scenes and stuff because whatever the film that we've got as i agree is very interesting it's very strange um it's also well edited and well put together i mean technically it's it look it doesn't look like some hack i think i just read recently it was sydney pollock who's in the movie because kubrick hadn't finished he took over editing towards the end well pollock's you know respected filmmaker who's very close to kubrick so it seems unlikely to me that there was some conspiracy there to express it. Um, and again, referring to the point that what's so shocking in Eyes Wide Shut, I mean, there are countless other movies, admittedly not with Kubrick's name on them, but that do explore these things. Manchurian Candidate was 1962. Yeah, like There's many movies that are successful that have exposed these things, and it just seems part of the entertainment industry and even the the conspiracy quote unquote is to 
is to turn these things into forms of entertainment. And I don't, if we look at the X-Files, for example, that didn't further the cause of understanding you know, the UFO problem at all. It didn't. It didn't raise awareness. It just turned it into entertainment and created more and more these sort of audience cults of people who believe it's true, but they don't. it's not grounded in any real... Uh, you know, personal research or deep personal self-examination. Uh, to me, that's all. That's that's the flaw in in so much of what I call and why I call it conspiratainment, is that these kind of realities they're so deep and dark and destructive. You can't approach them in the way that you approach certainly not entertainment but even the way you would approach mathematics or english or other kinds of study this is i mean i'm sure that you would agree with this because i know you're a, a, on a spiritual spiritual oriented yourself it's a it's a it's a spiritual quest for to save the soul it, it, it is that and nothing else mm. so if, if it's not uh, allowing us to become more and more aligned with reality and more and more deeply responsive and responsible to the presence of evil in our lives, then it's a trap. It's absolutely mm -hmm. a trap. And I'd say 99.999 of conspiracy uh, material and conspiracy consumers are, have fallen into that trap. I think that's a pretty good critique and it dovetails with your critique of Kubrick and his work and the way it's been used in that may it makes a good metaphor for the way the internet uh steals people's souls and is is ultimately a dead end and a trap and a, a kind of a kind of matrix and that we need something more than that right that ultimately to save ourselves from these uh negative things that rather than just talking about them and much less making entertainment about them or even satirizing them uh we need to take one step beyond that and uh, try to actually make things better, which ultimately is going to be a matter of uh, probably our own soul and the people that we know well, uh, that there's no magic bullet that's going to cure the situation for all of humanity. And, um, but of course, yeah, I suppose somebody like Kubrick might have that kind of revelation with, you know, with Dr. Strangelove, that it's kind of hopeless in terms of trying to you know, save the world through communicating to large numbers of people. And uh, instead, he just became a, a satirical artist, I guess. And that ultimately, that path isn't going to be saving a whole lot of souls. I don't know. I, in my set, I, I, looking back at the films that I've watched in life, the vast majority of them tend to put me to sleep, really, you know, spiritually and intellectually and Kubrick's don't they kind of wake me up so I mean I, I'll give it in terms of what's out there whether it's what's out there on the internet or what's out there in cinema uh I for me I think you know, Kubrick's work has not really been a negative it's probably been part of the experiences I've had that have led me to be spiritually engaged well I mean I think it's it's, it's really a question of how far it's like that fable you know the, the 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 man who's who earns who made some i can't remember it's a, that fable where one thing happens and uh it seems like a bad thing but then it leads to another thing which is a good thing and then it leads to another thing which is a bad thing and so, so there's this wise man who just keeps saying well i don't know i don't know if that was good or not because we just see that you know evil happens but it leads to something good so then we think it's good and then it leads to something evil so it depends how far back we're willing to pull to, to see the big picture now i know people for example or somebody personally 
who said they might have signed up for the military if they were Israeli, if they hadn't seen Full Metal Jacket. I can't possibly mm-hmm. argue with them that that film didn't have a positive impact on their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I think I knocked on doors for the nuclear freeze partly because of Dr. Strangelove. Yeah, yeah, but but so if but if the context is is saving our souls, which obviously is very big, yeah, it's a bit very big phrase, but um, is, is is if it's a spiritual context, then uh, it's necessary to look at all of the different elements that some supposed artifact and some supposed experience or effect is embedded in, and that's what I attempt to do with Kubrick. It doesn't. Uh, to, to say that those films are good films or that they had a profound impact, it, it in no means goes counter to my thesis at all. Mm-hmm. I'm certainly yeah. not arguing that they're crap films, I mean, except in the case of Eyes Wide Shut, uh, but that's also <laughs> part of my thesis because I'm t- looking at how what happens, this is a good example, I, I find for me, uh, what happens if a film that is somehow demonstrably experientially bad or off, as you put it, is is received as this great work of art? And, and, and how are we influenced by that? Because when the film first came out, most people, critics and ordinary audiences, saw that something was wrong. He hadn't really succeeded. Yeah, this can't be his final cut. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, but over time, it was reevaluated, and now it's talked about as his last masterpiece. Well, my point of view is that, this is that it's the same film that people saw the first time around, and it is a bad film, an excruciating, creepily bad film, albeit perhaps intentionally so, but that we have managed, those of us who've, who've changed our point of view, we've managed to um, distort our own perceptions in order to perceive uh, something in the way that we're being influenced to perceive it. And that's that's propaganda derangement. Like we see that throughout the world in countless different ways. And so for me, that's an example of what Kubrick was involved in is uh, distorting our own perceptual our, uh, faculties, our own criteria for aesthetic judgment, all these things, a cognitive impairment. I consider the over the oeuvre overall to have been extremely harmful. But to to human faculties, but I don't lay that at Kubrick's door because I've written a book, you know, eight hundred pages about Hollywood and the whole of Hollywood and the superculture. It's all it's endemic to the the art and the science of motion pictures. I consider mm-hmm. them to be a basic evil in our time. And I, this is somebody mm-hmm. who grew up on them and wrote his first books about them, and still to this day will will watch a movie and get swept away by it. Um, so when I say evil, uh, that's the big picture. You know, I'm not mm-hmm. saying I'm not really there, but I would say from God's eyes view, God's really saying, don't look at that stuff. Don't look at that stuff. It's the neti neti, right? All of these, like the Buddhists have the bardo realms when you die. There are all of these things that will capture attention and, and you have to say no to mm-hmm. every Beautifully last one of them. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, Jason, I wish you could have been at that Hollywood Hollywoodism conference in Iran that crit- critiqued uh, Hollywood values. I think you, you would have had one of the most powerful uh, possible critiques to present at that conference. But and we've hit the end of the hour for this show, and uh, it's been great. I think we, we've done, uh, you know, the best of Gene Siskel and Robert e- Ebert, one better in arguing <laughs> about Kubrick. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, thanks for being so there. Keep, keep up the great work. God bless. I look forward to seeing the next installment of the Kubrick work and uh, to continue to pursue your really interesting body of work. It's, it's really good stuff. 
Great. Well, thank you, Kevin. Thank you very much. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye.